and the officer is the one thing, they're one constant. Um, so what an officer does, even if it's just to say hello that day to a prisoner, or in one of my cases, um, one of the officers never ever said goodnight to me, and that killed me. Um, every, every night when the doors were slammed shut, and they'd look through the latch one last time to check you were in there, and they'd say, All right, bye Mandy, bye Sarah, and they'd get to mine, and they never said anything. And I, I, I waited every night, just praying. I, I looked, I was waiting for them to look through the hatch. And I just saw the flicker of the hatch, and I never saw them, say, and they never said anything. And, and that killed me. It honestly killed me. And um, for when, so when an officer is good to you, and when they say morning, or if they ask you how your day is, or are you okay, you look a bit funny, you know... These things may seem trivial, but they're not. They can mean the difference between, in some cases, life and death, um, because I've seen that happen. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning... Six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Today we're meeting with Dalton Harrison, who I first had the pleasure of meeting when visiting Ripon House, which is an exceptional approved premises for women in Leeds. Dalton had left the hostel some time earlier, but returned to share some of the experience with me and my colleagues. Dalton has a powerful story to tell, but before he does that, I'll share a bit of context. So, Dalton Harrison is the founder of Stand Fast Productions, which is a collective of ex-offenders who use art and performance to tell their stories. And he's also worked as a teaching assistant with the Inside Out Project at Durham University. He's also written articles for Inside Time, Pink News and Sister Magazine and has delivered a poetry workshop alongside uh, Durham Book. He's also performed at Leeds Poetry Festivals, and he continues to take talks on prison issues using poetry across the country. His poetry is being published in an award-winning book, which is called The Boy Behind the Wall, and it's his first solo collection. Welcome, Dalton. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Hi, Dalton. Really pleased to, to have you on today. Great to get the chance to have a conversation with you. Uh, so, how, can you tell us something about how you came to be at Ripon House and about your earlier experiences that had led to that? I think, um, yeah, you always wonder where things went wrong um, in regards to uh, I ended up in prison and that's where um, I was released to, which was Ripon House. But I think for me... I didn't really see a lot of things until I started reflecting. So I think my journey really started um, going um, the wrong way from the minute I, I was aware. Um, I'm a transgender um, man, but I didn't understand what that was. Um, being told at six years old that, you know, I should behave a certain way now um, and I should be doing this and I wasn't doing those things. And I, I think you suddenly become angry or at least you start to mistrust people because what they were telling me I was and what I thought I was were two different things. So who's right? Uh, and that's when I started to have a distrust of the system of people around me, society. Uh, and I think that led me to prison. And I was uh, in prison for two years before being released to Rippon House Hostel, which was 
like you said, a, an amazing uh, environment, um, which I wasn't expecting. What, what, what did you find so amazing about Open House? What, what, what do you think helped you be freed up there? I think for me, it was um, the first class I got, that, well, it's not a class, it was a, an activities group which was done um, by the coordinator, which was, we'll just say uh, she was called Pam, which she is, that's her first name. But um, she really sort of inspired me and I didn't expect that. I, like I said, I do mistrust people, especially in positions of power, as I, as I saw it, you know, they were professional. Um, but she come in and was like, come on everybody, we're gonna, we're gonna do this group. Um, and I was like, oh, what's that about? And it's about poetry and creative writing and art. And I was like, oh, well, I, I do like those things. But it, it wasn't just a lesson on that. It, it created so much more for me and it created a spark. And, and that's what Rippenhouse gave me was a spark that I didn't see um, could be flamed. Uh, and, and that's what I appreciate about um, Pam and staff members like her. So it sounds, Dalton, as though um, in doing that, she gave you the ability to be your authentic self as opposed to when you were talking about your early experiences, it sounds like you'd had one experience but we're being told your experience wasn't wasn't valid yeah i mean the one thing that pam did was she made me feel human and i think sometimes you can forget in a system that's quite punitive um that often people are human and, and they don't always want to be bad they don't always want to to do bad things yet sometimes in my case i i honestly didn't feel i had a choice i didn't see any other option than the way i was behaving and um, for people to suddenly say, well, we know you've made a mistake. We accept that you, you're, you've done that, but we're not taking you as that person now. You're the person that's sat in our group. You're the student that wants to learn or you're the person that wants to engage. And she always made me feel welcome. And that was one thing that I just never felt was welcomed. And um, yeah, it really made a difference in my life. That's terrific, thank you. And on, on the very first page of your book, The Boy Behind the Wall, you write, Trapped inside the stories others told, my eyes being heavy with guilt and shame as the lies bubbled up inside of me over who I really was. Can you say how, how you worked out who you really are? And how you did that? How long did it take? It took a long time. I mean, I was born in 1979 and I think, you know, the backlash of the um, sort of uh, Section 28 era where, you know, no schools wanted to talk about homosexuality or about certain subjects and... And I knew I liked girls. I didn't understand what context. I didn't understand what transgender meant. I didn't, I didn't have the words or the articulation to be able to manoeuvre, only that my feelings didn't match what I saw in the mirror. And um, the way people reacted to me weren't matching to the way that I felt I should be treated or, or reacted to. So there's a constant conflict and chaos and a battle I couldn't really understand. Um, so yeah, I think for me, it took a long time because there wasn't words, there wasn't information. I didn't, there wasn't Google at my fingertips. Um, you know, the only time I saw anyone that looked a little bit like how I felt was usually in the media, the front of the sun. And it was usually a very horrible, terrible thing that this person had done because they were, they were transgender or, or transsexual, as they like to call people. And, um, and I was painted a villain. I was painted as somebody that was, was, was um, seen as a villain in society. And I, before I'd even committed a crime, um, that's how I saw myself as wrong. And I think that escalates. Yeah, I think things have changed quite a lot, haven't they, since 1979. So I'm, I'm not saying things are, 
uh, wonderful for people now, but it seems as if there's much more knowledge and awareness around around trans um, trans issues. Yeah, I mean, for me, there's a lot more communication, and I still get people saying, "Oh, what's this pronouns business?" And um, oh, this is this is a new thing. And I'm like, well, it's 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 new for you. It's never been a new thing for me. It's uh, the words, perhaps the the mainstream use in in society is perhaps a, a novelty to some that's never had to deal with it. But it was, um, yeah, part of my journey was that finding that other people were, were using the same language as me, and that was incredible and, and fantastic. And I wanted more of it. So there's a lot more, yeah, mainstream use and um, vocabulary and conversations. Um, and different narratives that I really appreciate. Um, where were you in your journey when you first went into prison and did that influence what kind of prison you went to? Yeah, I mean, I, I hid it for so long. Um, everyone that knew me knew that there was something different about me. Um, I chose my profession as security from a young age of 19 because I could go to, to work in a shirt and tie and that made me feel great. Um, and I didn't have like a female uniform, which was good. Um, but yeah, I think I didn't, I, I hid, hid that side of me to the point where um, majority of people saw me as a butch lesbian, which was that the label people seemed to, to fit with me. Um, but I didn't come out to absolutely everybody um, until I was going into prison um, and I come out as a trans man. And um, yeah, that, I, I just presumed that no one could think any worse of me. As I was going to prison, as I was heading that way, I thought, Do you know what, I might as well go out the way that I want to go out. Um, but yeah, that was a different, a different experience maybe to some people's coming out story. That sounds quite brave because I think if you're already in this situa situation of going into prison and that's perhaps changing people's perspectives of you, it sounds, it sounds like um, you're really opening yourself up to a a lot of um, scrutiny from those around you. I think for me, um, I'd faced that my entire life. From when I was a young age, from as long back as I can remember, I used to go to the girls' table and they'd tell me to go away, a lot of them, because they're like, you're not a girl. So I'd go to the boys' table and they'd say, go away, we don't play with girls. So yeah, I've always felt that grey area in regards to fitting in. Um, I've been attacked throughout my life for being a lesbian. They've seen me as a lesbian, so I've been attacked nights out, uh, homophobically sort of um, ostracised by men and women that don't see me as fitting into their, their sense of binary. Um, and then as I got older, yeah, you, you still get um, that transphobia, which is very much still um, alive and kicking in the world. So I've always had uh, violence put my way for just being me. So yeah, I think going into prison was almost a relief in a sense because I'd had enough. What kind of response did you, were you met with in prison? To begin with, there's a lot of things that when people get into prison, the first thing people want to know is your offence. They want to judge whether they'll hang around with you. A lot of people were a bit confused by me. A lot of people didn't understand what being transgender was. Um, some people thought I was... Um, a man changing into a woman and, and that made them fearful. Um, others were just confused and, and just thought, well, I don't want anything to do with you. But yeah, I did make some good friends that I'm still friends with now and that kept me going. Did you, did you encounter bullying in prison? Um, or was, was that more in, in the earlier parts of your life? 
Yeah, I did suffer quite a bit of bullying when I first got into the first prison. Um, there seemed to be so many different reasons people were throwing at me as to why I was being bullied. Um, some people made references um, to me looking male, so I presumed for that, for that reason that was why they were shouting at me. Others seemed confused as to my crime. They called me a murderer, and I said, well, you don't get, you're not in prison for two years for murder, so I think you're wrong. Um, other people were confusing me with, I looked perhaps like somebody that's sent in the media and, and I wasn't the same person. But everyone was um, coming at it from different angles and the trouble with prison is once the seed is sown, there's always a wildfire somewhere. So yeah, that was a problem for a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Dalton, you're a very accomplished person now. When did things start to go in a more positive direction for you? I think um, it was when I got transferred to another prison uh, and that's when everything started to change. Um, I was very fearful up until then. I, I kept myself to myself. Um, as much as I identified as male, I'd still suffered the abuse that a lot of women and, and experiences of women have, have lived. I, I suffered domestic abuse. I suffered uh, violence against me for different reasons. And I was timid and I'd been used to being coerced to behave in certain manner, manners and I, I kept to myself. I didn't think anything that I had to say was valid. Um, so when I got into this prison, uh, I was introduced to um, some people that were doing an induction and I didn't realise it was prisoner-led because the other induction in the other prison was um, by staff members and that hadn't gone as well. And um, these, um, these other prisoners um, took me under their wing um, and that, ch that changed my life. Um, that, that, that set me on a direction um, to becoming a better person. It's interesting to hear that because I think quite a few of the, the guests we've had on who've got lived experience of prison have spoken about the importance of somebody seeing the potential in them and and that kind of like fanning the flame and it sounds like that might be an experience you could identify with. Yes, definitely. I think sometimes, you know, there's a lot of obstacles why people end up in prison or commit crime. It's not always clear cut. Um, I'm not saying that their actions are justified because of that. By no means do I, you know, I'm fully supportive of victims of crime and I and I fully believe that they should be um, supported and helped and nurtured. I'm not always about the offender. But, um, yeah, for me, just having someone believe in me, somebody actually say you're human, somebody to say what you have to say matters. Um, yeah, that, that, that made me um, just sit back and think, wow, what, you mean I matter? Because uh, I honestly didn't think I did and I didn't think I ever did. So having somebody step forward and say, come on, let's sort this out, um, really made a difference in my life. It's quite heartbreaking though, isn't it, to think that somebody has to go to prison to have that experience. You know, that's something that we would hope that all children, you know, it's something that all children deserve and have the right to. And uh, I think it's it's quite painful to, when we recognise, you know, how, how much that's not been the experience for people who end up in prison you know typically that's not been it's not been their narrative has it? I think the thing with my parents is that um they were brought up in an era that was very unforgiving um you know my mum was punished that she wasn't a good enough mother because of how I turned out they blamed her that she didn't teach me how to be a woman you know this isn't not her reflecting on her parenting that I'm transgender by no means you know my dad blamed himself he was angry he said oh I shouldn't have played football with you I shouldn't have done this, I've made you this way. 
And, and he, he had a level of guilt that was sort of bestowed on him from a generational perspective. His moment in history taught him how to be a man and that wasn't necessarily a good thing. You know, there's a lot of toxic masculinity that we're addressing now. There's a lot of things that we're talking about, men's mental health issues surrounding that. And yeah, he didn't have that support. Um, and a lot of what he, he had to give me and the tools that he was given, you know, it probably did change me in a certain way and not necessarily in a good way. But yeah, I think he did feel that um, that separation from me as a parent because he just didn't know how to deal with me. Uh, and that was one of the main problems I had um, with not feeling love or acceptance or, or, or having that chance from a young age. Thanks, Dalton. I was just wondering from something you said a few moments ago, whether you thought that prisons had different cultures which can make a difference or whether you benefited more from the second prison you went to, more as a kind of to do with the place in your own individual journey that you were at. What do you think? I do think there's a massive um, disparity in the female prison system within um, security measures. And I think that really has to be addressed because we judge female prisons as either open or closed. And that's the way it's written. I'm learning that in, psych uh, in criminology, I mean, um, at the moment, you know. And, and we look at these things, but what, what happens in practice is different. Now, if I was in certain prison, the security measures would be vastly more strict, which I found in one prison, and going to the other, even stricter. And I was really shocked. But even so, even the second prison was a lot more security-based. Um, they were doing a lot with peer mentoring and giving prisoners roles within the prison. And that gave people hope. It gave me hope when I saw a Shannon Trust mentor that um, I could be someone like that that would wear that T-shirt. I saw listeners helping people. And I thought, well, I want to help people. I want purpose. I want a goal. I want to learn how to do something with the Samaritans. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's what we need. We need to encourage people within prisons to be able to access um, jobs and, and have proper qualifications um, and to give them that confidence because a lot of people I was seeing couldn't read, they dropped out of school at a young age. Uh, I had myself at 15, um, I left a bit early, but some people had left at 13, you know, and it's that idea of like, we need to like recognise that people have something to offer and tell them and prove that to them by putting a system in place that allows them to grow. And I felt this prison was doing that uh, a lot more than the other prison. Hmm. You're right, thanks. That's very interesting, Gordon. So this, this next question, I found it very difficult to, to formulate it. So you know better than most that issues around sexuality arouse very strong feelings and all sorts of tensions, anxieties and resentments seem to attach to them. And, and in fact, I think the whole area has become highly politicised. How do you understand this? And, and uh, I'd be interested to know what you think about that and you too, Naomi. I think for me, um, yeah, there's a lot surrounding female safe spaces and I, I fully am wanting everyone's space to be safe and, and to, for them not to be at risk of, of, of anything happening to them. But when we use high profile cases, especially in, in regards to trans issues, and that's all we're really relying on, one person. Um, and if we look at you know, the, the whole environment of society, the normative approach to society, you can't say, right, that person's committed that offense, they're straight, 
they're, they're cisgendered, they're this, and this is a particular crime for cisgender people, and we're not having it. This is not safe space for LGBT, because this cisgender person has done this. We wouldn't do that. But yet, why do we have that narrative when it comes to one person that's transgender, that's in a prison, that has committed offences that are against women, but yet, oh, they've gone to this side for this sole purpose, therefore everyone else is. Um, there's a massive culture of, um, yeah, just transphobia, as, as well as like Islamphobia, when we're looking at, at people that, um, that are in prisons that are trying to um, access their religion and they have scarves and prisoners aren't supposed to wear scarves across their faces because security reasons and then we're, we're, we're delving with so many different issues but what I do notice is just that labelization of certain groups and it's the new moral panic it's the new form of abuse that we're putting on people which we did with gay people which is fully recognized now as wrong but at one point that was against the law you know, um, I would have been a criminal from the start because I'm not wearing the gender-appropriate clothing of my birth gender. Therefore, at one point in law, I would have been committing a grave offence by going out in public like this. We need to look at what we, what we do as a justice system, as the media, as, as um, you know, those moral panics that we create within a society and address what we're doing right now in the media in regards to sexuality, um, transgender issues and as well as many more including racism and, and other ways especially within the justice system that is very um, I'd say they're quite behind in regards to society um, definitely Do you think social media plays a role in terms of pushing people into quite pol polarised positions rather than understanding things in a more nuanced way which I think then might jar against people's people are frightened of change aren't they and frightened of things that they don't understand and I don't know whether social media perhaps pushes people to, to extremes. I do think that's a really really good point because I do think that is happening if we've got um, a Facebook page and somebody shares somebody has done something and somebody shares it if you look at how many people have shared that that is a form of um, yeah um, mass moral panic where everyone's like oh my god that person's a danger I'm sharing it this is vital we need to share this information but if we actually delve into a lot of these Facebook pages or Twitter feeds then sometimes the actual core at the beginning of that uh, initial information isn't quite what they're projecting by the end of it and it's a form of Chinese whispers um, and I do think that um, yeah false allegations is a, is a massive thing within the prison system and also um, yeah, it's that idea of uh, justice. Are we really, are we really um, practicing justice when we do these things, or are we? Uh, is it a witch hunt, um, which we have been known to do in a, in our in our history? Yeah, it's it's you're, you're dead right there. Um, I mean, most of my experience in this field comes from being a young man and being aware of the extreme anxiety around the idea of gayness. Uh, homosexuality and yeah how among groups of young men particularly you know, the, the desire to mock and to turn gay people into subjects of uh, humour and fun can so easily flick over into fear anger and violence actually it's a terrifying phenomenon when these things get amplified as they currently are through social media as you're describing then we enter into a very kind of 
volatile and unsettled world, I think. I think, yeah, the media does, it, there's no accountability. If you post something, it's not the same as doing it to somebody's face. Early 2000, um, I was subjected to a very severe homophobic attack with, my, um, with one of my friends, and he, me and him were dancing, and somebody looked at me, looked at him, and presumed I was his lover, I was a gay man. Um, and he was very drunk, and I helped him to the toilet. I didn't go into the men's with him, I just said, go on, there you go, geez, look at you, we're, we're gonna get off in a minute, you're out of it. Um, and in the process of that moment, um, I heard a horrible scream. And um, as the door flung back, somebody knocked me over and said, you need to choose your friends more wisely. And as I looked, I saw the blood uh, and, I, and I realized he'd been punched. And the guy come back with his friends to get me because uh, he thought I was a bit bigger than my friend and he was gonna get some backup. And in that moment, I, I didn't know what to do. I just said, you've had your fun, just go. You know, you've, done, you, you've proved yourself, go on, just go, mate, just go. Um, but yeah, it was that idea of he was protecting his morality. He was, his status as a male was jeopardised. I don't know if my friend smiled at him or not in the toilets, but it's that cultural, um, the cultural roles that we are given and, and how, um, as I've experienced living as a woman and now living as a man, how those cultural divides are intoxicating, but yet so demeaning for both genders because we can be crushed by them. And I do think that needs to be addressed. Thank you. I was wondering if we should uh, move on, Dalton. Can we talk about some of the many things that you've been doing since leaving prison? You're the founder of Standfast Productions. Can you tell us what that is and where did the name come from? Um, to me, I, I learned what standfast meant in prison, and it was a word that I didn't understand, which was maybe quite comic. So somebody, sh I was in the, the wing, and somebody shouted, it's a standfast. And I'm, so I, 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 was, I was a cleaner by then, and I had my, my little broom, and I stopped, like rigid. He's like, what are you doing? Come on. And I was like, I'm, I'm standing fast. And I didn't move, I was like musical statues. And he's like, don't be stupid, are you mocking me? And I was like, no, 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 of course not, because I thought I was going to get in trouble. I was like, no, 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 I was going after him. And he's like, oh, you're taking the mickey out of me. And um, what I didn't realise was a stand fast meant um, that you didn't stand fast, that that wasn't what it meant. Um, it meant that you had to go to the office because one of the prisoners was missing. So they had to count, the count was wrong. So there should be so many prisoners and one's missing and they've got to make sure no one's um, disappeared. Usually it means that you're, uh, you're lost somewhere and the officers have forgotten about you, which has happened to me. I've created two standfasts in my prison where once I was left in healthcare for four hours and I was too scared to, to bang on the door uh, in case I got in trouble. And then another time uh, they forgot where they put me and they left me on the wrong wing because I talked too much and they, they couldn't be bothered to take me back to my wing. They dumped me somewhere. Um, and it's that idea of a prisoner being lost and you want them to be counted. And in my, my idea, when I got out, I felt lost. And I wanted no one else to feel like that. I didn't want anyone else to feel lonely, like they didn't know their place. And I wanted them to be counted. Uh, and that's what I thought, um, you know, stand fast, so that everyone can come to us and feel like they're counted. Yeah, I love that, uh, Dalton, because it uh, reminded me so much of that kind of universal state of confusion that one has from the first time one's shoved into a playground at school for the first time to every time you go to a new job and don't understand what's going on and everyone else understands what's going on. 
Bloody hell, life's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. So, so what are you doing now with uh, Standfast? Well, the first thing that we did um, initially uh, was we did a play live on stage, which was probably one of the worst plays you've ever seen in your life. We have no experience whatsoever than doing a couple of pantos in prison for charity. Um, so I was probably a little bit too big for my boots, but we raised money for Ripon House, um, and we were really proud of that. And that play was called High Risk, and that went on to a radio play, uh, which we'd uh, sort of edited. And now we've gone to do another ra uh, radio play, um, and that's called HM Pride. And that's actually coming out on November the 24th for Chapel FM Writing On Air, um, which we're really looking forward to. Great. So you're also a poet. And when I got a copy of your book, which is called The Boy Behind the Wall, I didn't really know what to expect because, you know, much of prison poetry is of quite mixed quality, often very heartfelt but predictable and maybe a bit over-sentimental. I thought yours was on a quite different level and I was really impressed. It's beautifully written and much of it has that quality of being highly individual and yet universal, as you've been demonstrating during this conversation, actually. How did you learn to write like that? Um, I think for me, it's all about feelings. Um, throughout the first time that I ever wrote a poem at school, I was laughed at. Um, the teacher told me to go back and do it again. Um, and I remember that walk of shame, walking from the top of the class to the bottom where I was sat, wishing I'd never tried because everyone was laughing at me. Um, but my mum wrote poetry um, before she moved to England, she's Dutch. And I remember reading um, the front cover of her book and I, and I didn't understand it because it was all in Dutch. And I remember thinking, she can do it, I can. And, and my mum's a poet, so I want to be one. And I did write a couple of poems when I was younger. Um, and I actually got praise for it in the end. And, and that's what made me think, wow, I just want to keep doing this. But I didn't know the structure. I didn't understand what a real poem was. Uh, I just kept writing what I felt. Thank you. Just thinking back to, back to that question earlier, Dalton, about kind of like the fact that you spend, spend time thinking about issues around sexuality, for instance. Do you think poverty, uh, poetry... Uh, as a medium lends itself to exploring these kind of like more complex issues is there something about poetry that that helps helps open things up i think so for me poetry is raw it can it could mean so many things and it's open to interpretation but also it, it, it i noticed with poetry um it just it's it's a short sharp slap if you need it and i think poetry just gives you a chance to be creative but not in a menacing or, or horrible way but but just in a way that opens up conversation and I really like that because a lot of people didn't want to talk to me even before I went into prison because they didn't understand oh I don't know what you are so I'm not really gonna I'm not dealing with that uh, but yeah poetry was a way to to express myself across the plane really to, that people could all latch onto in some way and, and sort of get what I was saying Great. Dalton, you'd agreed to read us a couple of your poems. Is that okay? Would you like to yeah, do that? Yeah, yeah. 
so I've got one that's um, that's called Once Upon a Time, and um, I um, the first person I showed this uh, poem to was the librarian um, in the in one of the prisons that I went to, and um, she really encouraged me to to write more, uh, and she said she liked my poem, and it was about my mother. Um, and about her love of books because she was a librarian before she came to England and um, I think she gave me a lot of insight and that's what this poem's about. Once upon a time. My once upon a time happened years ago. I was all cheeky grins, a mop of blonde hair. I would listen to my mother tell tales of magic, building the very fabric of my youth. My mother waving dreams, her soft voice soothing me to sleep, deep forests, logs burning candlelight, thoughts of fairies, pixies, angels in flight. My once upon a time, when magic fell down like snowflakes, on adventures where I was always the hero, a million books away now, from the start of my once upon a time. But the love remains, every time I say my mother's name, where the magic still echoes, deep inside. Thank you. I thought that was such a great encapsulation of a good experience of mothering and of course not everyone has that so thanks very much for that. And the second one? Yeah she um... I thought that was really beautiful. No no I appreciate that no it's um it's something that I, it, it's hard um she passed away when I was in prison and um but she really she really carried me through um, and I didn't realise how much um, she had been there for me but she didn't know how to be when I was younger and I think that's where communication and poetry played an even more important part in my life because that was how I could tell her without having to tell her uh, what she meant to me. It's a really beautiful poem, you can really hear the appreciation of your mum within that. Yeah, and the, and the second one we we mentioned, in a way, was a continuation of that. It's a kind of, well, you read the poem. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes um, prison officers get a, a bad rap. They get a, they get um, they get mocked almost by the other blue light services. They're almost not seen as as um, what they should be seen. I think because they are on the front line. They are dealing with people. The society doesn't want to, in theory, deal with anymore, um, and they put them behind these closed doors and forget about them. But that's where the prisoners' off officers step in, and um, yeah, there are good and bad officers. Um, but um, this book was about praising the good, um, and I actually talked to this officer recently, so it's quite funny that I'm going to read this one, and it's called the Good Officer. In dreams we perceive all we hope we can be, diving in pools of rich colour changing to what only we see. Few wake to embrace such realities. For the dreamer, it will always be just a dream. F few believe after waking, all these colors can be achieved. But inside these walls and these stone floors, I found you believed in me. Thank you. So it was the final line that is the kind of uh, continuation, I think, of the, recog the the awareness that somebody sees you, just yeah. as your mother did. Yeah, 
definitely. This year, you mentioned the 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 um, it being a book that's that's really about the positive, and I wondered how easy it came to you to put your focus on positive aspects to your story or to, to, or to what degree you've had to cultivate that. There's a lot of negative in the book. Um, I was in a very negative place still for most of the book. Um, it's it's almost done in a biography form. Um, so there's um, the whole continuation from youth all through to the courts and then, and then prison. So there are lots of things, but in each moment there is always light as well as dark. So there are, if you look, a lot of positive, um, even though you may not see it initially straight away. Um, and it's the positive that keeps you going. And like I said, for some people, the officer is the only one they'll talk to that day. They may not have calls. Um, they may not have anyone they can ring. They might not have anyone that visits them. And the officer is the one thing, they're one constant. Um, so what an officer does, even if it's just to say hello that day to a prisoner, or in one of my cases, um, one of the officers never ever said goodnight to me. And that killed me. Um, every, every night when the doors were slammed shut and they'd look through the latch one last time to check you were in there, and they'd say, All right, bye Mandy, bye Sarah. And they'd get to mine and they never said anything. And I, I, I waited every night, just praying. I, I looked, I was waiting for them to look through the hatch. And I just saw the flicker of the hatch and I never saw him say, and they never said anything. And, and that killed me. It honestly killed me. And um, for when, so when an officer is good to you and when they say morning or if they ask you how your day is or are you okay, you look a bit funny. You know, these things may seem trivial, but they're not. They can mean the difference between, in some cases, life and death um, because I've seen that happen. Okay, we got to the end. Thanks very much, Jordan. That was uh, very powerful stuff. Very much so. Really enjoyed that. Um, a lot to think about. Well, thank you for inviting me again, and uh, it's always a, a joy to talk to different people and uh, yeah, just to be a part of something bigger. Great, thanks very much. It's really good to see you again, Dalton. Yeah, it was good to see you. I just wanted to say, I think it's really really good to have different stories of, because I think you're offering something really hopeful for people who might feel like, um, like there is no hope. But I think when you hear inspirational stories of how people have managed to, to go on and find their purpose and do things that are successful, I think that offers a real candle to other people. No, definitely. I mean, for me, when I was in prison, I only ever heard the negative. Um, I would, you'd only hear people that were coming back in, which was always negative. So you'd hear people on recall or people that had committed offences. And, um, and even the worst was that you'd only hear the people that were dead. Like, you'd never hear about the people that succeeded. You'd have a candlelight visual for someone that's passed away and, and you'd be mortified that you'd only saw them a week before and you couldn't work out how it had ended like that. And, and those things would play on you and play on you until each candlelight vigil become a blur. Um, and to hear positive stories to me was important because, yeah, there's so many people that only hear the negative and that's all it, that their environment entails. How are they supposed to ever see hope? So, yeah, to me, positive stories and reflection and um, yeah, showing a journeys, different journeys is important. Mm -hmm.